Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Notable. Thank you. Thank you to Jeff, who is the producer of the Notable Podcast. We are now partway through season two. Yeah. Episode five. Is that what it is? Yeah. Episode five, season two. Some people get very annoyed. Some people get very annoyed about us calling it season, don't they? Series. And not series. Series two for the Brits. So thank you to Jeff. This, though, is our first ever... Live event. Live event. one-stop roadshow. So thank you. In years to come... Rather like the Sex Pistols at the Lesser Free Trade Hall. <laughs> You'll be one of 50,000 people who say you're in this little room. Um, and Hinterlands is a film festival, primarily. So we've picked two topics just to have a little chat with you about today, uh, connected with film. In a, in a little while, I'm going to talk a bit. Well, we're both going to talk, but I'm going to lead a bit of a chat about uh, the 1973 British folk horror movie, The Wicker Man. Um, which I'd argue created its soundtrack, almost created a very hip genre of music, and now uh, which goes under various names, psych folk, acid folk, whatever you want to call it. But before that, Elizabeth, what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about Johan Johansson, Icelandic composer, famous for his film work, possibly, more than anything else, although he did write all kinds of things. Um, but I'm not just, just going to talk about his work. I'm going to go out on a bit of a limb, as mm. usual, and suggest that actually Iceland... And growing up there um, helped him kind of emerge as he did as the composer and create the sound that he did. Uh, but also to make a unique contribution to the international kind of classical, avant-garde, experimental and film music scene. So, okay. yeah. So uh, if people don't know Johan, you might know uh, the music that he wrote for films like Arrival, uh, The Theory of Everything, um, Sicaro, Denis Villeneuve, uh, who he wrote with a lot. He spent a lot of time writing film music, but really this only started when he started to kind of merge what he was doing, which was mostly with electronics and ambient music, with orchestral music. And then directors came knocking because he'd kind of create this new genre, which was ambient electronic music, and then really kind of emotive, huge uh, orchestral scores that sat really well with cinema. Um, I love this quote from Variety magazine. Um, it says, He expanded our idea of what film music can be, inviting audiences to think instead of telling them how to feel. So there's a lot of space in his music, and I know that's a really kind of classic thing to say about music these days, but actually Johan was one of the first people to really kind of put space into his music, put atmosphere, invite the atmosphere into the music, and create this kind of space that people could go and actually decide how they felt about what they were seeing and, you yeah. know, decide what they thought about the picture and what the story was and um, it's collaborate not, with him, I suppose, yeah. on that. It's not like, 
I mean, there's nothing wrong with John Williams's music or people like that, but it's nothing like that. It's nothing like music work that says to you, you're supposed to be frightened now. Yeah. Or you're supposed to be happy now, or you're supposed to laugh at this bit. Yeah, yeah. and he actually does this, like, you know, it's kind of a genius thing in that he manages to hold contrasting emotions in his music. So you will hear music by him that is both kind of melancholic and euphoric, that is... Um, beautiful and terrifying at the same time. So I'll come on to that a little bit more in a moment. But really, he is considered as having uh, created this new genre. It's, it's genre-defining. Uh, this mix in electronics, pop influences as well. He started out in heavy metal bands, actually. He was in a band called Daisy Hill Poppy Farm. Right. We probably shouldn't uh, interrogate too much why it was called that. Is that the Daisy Hill near Bolt? <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, a pioneer when it came to that. And one of the reasons for this might be because his father was an engineer. Um, his father actually engineered a, a program that helped computers record music and sound uh, for IBM. And Johann's first album was IBM 1401. Uh, that came out in 2006 and was a reference to, uh, to his father's work for IBM. So we'll come back to his music shortly. But really, just thinking about that idea of space and atmosphere brings me on to Iceland. Yeah. Um, because this is a place that, where the, you know, the atmosphere, the space, the landscape is so unique and really does, I think, I think, shape the way his music sounds. And we've been to Iceland, haven't we? We, we went uh, to Iceland. We've I been mean, bankrupt ever since. That's right. We've, we've, <laughs> we've we paid £25 for a pint. We sat, we, we sat in the bar of the Opera House, I remember this well, in, uh, what's it called, that Opera House? Ah, ah. It's, yeah, there is a proper name for it, which will come back to me. But the big approach there, and I had a half of beer, you had a half of beer and a bowl of soup. Oh, you and, mean Harper? And Harper. Yeah, Harper, yeah. I had a half, you had a half, you had a bowl of soup, 40 quid. Um, <laughs> so, you know, we've just gone past, where is it, Flutes and Fizz down in the high street here in Skipton where we're recording this. I'm assuming it's cheaper to get, get drunk in there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we did a lot of skidding around in Doc Martens as well, didn't we? On yeah. The but it's, don't wear Doc Martens if you go to Iceland. But you said that's something about Iceland that gets into the music. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, we were actually there for the Dark Music Days Festival. We were. That's what we were there for. And the Dark Music Days Festival happened in, uh, it started in 1980, which is 41, year, 41 yeah, years ago. So around 1980, 81. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's an incredible festival, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you, you'll hear so many different kinds of music. I remember going to this basement and seeing this kind of Croatian guy who had all these things wired up and was just, like, raving behind this uh, kind of uh, stand. We, I saw something where there, was pe there were people with coins and they were sort of tapping the coins and hearing the resonances. We saw the guitar, the Icelandic guitar quartet, didn't we? We also yeah. said, do you remember that, that vocal ensemble? who sang what, if you didn't know, because we can't speak Icelandic, so we didn't know, they, they were singing what you think were like contemporary madrigals, something, oh, yeah, something you yeah. would hear on Radio 3, but the audience kept laughing, and we didn't know why they were laughing. And afterwards, we were told, it's because all of the things they're singing about are like very contemporary things. So that girl then was singing about the fact that some guy's texting her inappropriately, or they were singing about, you know, the, yeah. their internet connection had gone down and they couldn't get Wi-Fi. But it sounded so... So that, obviously, was humorous in a nice Sunday contest. We just thought, yeah. why are people laughing at this weird music? Yeah, yeah. And it's a mixture of really experimental, out-there stuff, electronic music, classical music. You'll hear choirs in churches, classical ensembles, the orchestra play yeah. in Harper. And I think that's more common now for festivals, but actually 41 years ago, that's pretty unique, yeah. and it takes place in venues all over uh, Reykjavik, so, yeah. you know, a little bit like this. But I think 
40 years ago, roughly, is when the sugar cubes came out of Iceland as well. Mm -hmm. And I think they were just the tip of the iceberg of this kind of incredible amount of, of creative activity and experimental activity. So I was thinking about this, and I spoke to um, your friend of mine, Valgeir Sigurdsson. He yes. runs a label uh, called The Bedroom Community in Reykjavik, and he's worked a lot with Bjork, he's worked with Tom York as well, um, done stuff with Radiohead as well as Tom York solo stuff. And he is, I mean, he, The Bedroom Community is this incredible kind of hub for Ben Frost, who is an electronic uh, producer from Australia, Nico Mooley, who's like the darling of the classical scene in New York, the contemporary classical scene in New York. They all come together under this, you know, label. They record in this beautiful place just outside of Reykjavik with views of the mountains. And it's this really sort of unique collection of people from all different backgrounds who appreciate what the others are doing and appreciate each other's work and work together and collaborate. And I just think Iceland's quite a unique place for this sort of thing to happen. So I was talking to Valgir about this and why this might have, you know, why these, all these kind of cool people, Johan Johansson having led the way really, you know, along with Björk and people like that, but why did they come out of this place? So Valgay was saying that there's all kinds of reasons for this, really. One of the reasons is that it's a small community, so it's easier to collaborate with friends. You know, if you, you might be a classical violinist, but it's likely your friend will be a rock guitarist. You know, people are kind of less siloed. Added to that is the fact that there's, they don't have the weight of a classical tradition like we do perhaps here and in Germany and definitely Austria and Italy and France as well. So there's less snobbery in that way. Mm. And also... Um, again, like if you're a classical musician, it's not necessarily the case that then that'll be your roots. You know, you might also play with a folk band or sing in a choir or play heavy metal, which is what Johan Johansson did. There are so many choirs in Iceland. There are over 300 choirs. And actually, for a population of 340,000, say every choir is around 20, 30, some maybe over 100. It's quite That's a lot incredible. of people. Yeah, so it's, it's a high number. I don't know many people are in Skipton. What's Skipton's population? Right, because Greater Wigan, he said, plucking a town out of the air. <laughs> Wigan Metro's got 250,000 people in it. Something like that, the whole yeah. borough. Yeah, yeah. So that gives you an idea. God, there's 350 choirs in Wigan, you know. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. And when you go to the record shops in Reykjavik, and there are lots of record shops for such a small place as well, often if you go to the like, traditional Icelandic section, most of it is choral music, and it's utterly sublime. It's yeah. beautiful, beautiful kind of tra traditional, but a lot of contemporary composers in Iceland as well write music for choirs. And it's infused with the traditional sound, so it's this really kind of beautiful, ethereal sound. Also, because of this lack of kind of classical heritage and lack of a pop music industry as well, a lot of people, when they start making music, they just want to make music with their friends, yeah. and it's for fun. So there's not much pressure, which actually means they're not, they're not taking a careerist approach. It can just be a little bit more experimental. So again, what comes out tends to be more collaborative, experimental, pushing boundaries and all that kind of thing. Um, it's also quite hard to navigate. That's why we have a lot of choirs in Iceland, because... Um, it's quite a low-maintenance thing to do with friends. You don't need electricity. You can just rock up and yeah, all yeah, sing together. Yeah. So in a country where, I suppose, the weather in the past probably made it difficult to, you know, actually organise well, events or... You I know, was just going to say, did Val here say when he was talking to you that surely one of the reasons why they make so much music and art and stuff is because it goes dark, dark at 2 yeah. o'clock for half the year. <laughs> Seriously, it's dark until 11 in the morning as well. What are you going to do? Yeah, it's dark till... It comes light at half past <laughs> 10 in the morning. And... Um, 
Yeah. You know, and it's dark again at two. So, yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, weather, the weather and um, the conditions and, you know, until recently, I suppose, probably around 40 years ago, and Valgir did actually say this, um, it, that, was, that was the time that Iceland started to modernise. I think it... I mean, when you go to Reykjavik, it's such a small place, isn't mm. it? I think... They, they've got an H&M there now, but they didn't, certainly, when um, I first went in 2017. This is, this is Elizabeth's yeah. <laughs> mark, mark so, of cultural economic progression. That's when it became a real place. They got an H&M, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, I think it was just this kind of outpost, really, with a, a heavy American influence. And then when the sugar cubes became massive and Björk went on and became massive, the government actually started to recognise the value of of the country's uh, culture and started to invest in the arts. So that helped as well. I read a statistic in the 80s, I'm sure that... Uh, oh, sorry, I read a statistic that in the 80s, 40% of Iceland's population were American. Right, OK. Because 40% of the it, people yeah. were American soldiers on, on the bases there, yeah. Yeah, and when you go to the glacier, often uh, it's, Ameri- you know, all right. the old American vehicles and base camp and everything. Um, also, because of isolation, electronics became popular because, obviously, it's easier to make music on your own with yeah. a synth or a computer. Um, so I think there was this, this kind of DIY um, ethic and electronics made it more possible to kind of do things yourself. So that experimenting with electronics has always been a part of kind of contemporary music in Iceland. And the Nordic lifestyle is very outdoorsy. And yeah. I don't know if people have been to Iceland, but it's just this kind of really strange lunar like landscape, isn't it? And it is. Although it's not epic views. It is. It's not strange though. Did anybody watch Rick Stein's program on Iceland the other week? When he went, I was infuriated by it to the extent that I had to take to social media in a rant because he said, <laughs> oh, "Iceland," in his cod Cornish accent. Um, Iceland. It's um, it's a bit like Twin Peaks with a bit of Game of Thrones thrown. It's like, no, it's not. It's a modern European country. With, you know, Thrones, yeah. this idea that it's quirky and it's all elves and volcanoes, really sort of. A, it's a, actually a, really forward thinking. It's forward thinking. Like, it's a lot more grown up in a lot of ways than this country. 100%, so it's yeah. not a freakish fairy land. And, I, and then he said to the bloke, that Icelandic cook, he said, Why do people come here? It's really dark and cold. And I thought, Why isn't he punching you on the nose at this point, mate? <laughs> you but, did it on Twitter. But sure. yeah, but it, so I do think there is a little bit of that about, Oh, it's, it's a fur. It, no, it's a modern progressive country, it but is, it is yeah. an extraordinary looking modern progressive country yeah I mean they've been ahead of the curve on so many things Um, also all these things are part of the culture there and I'm this is where I'm about to go out on a limb but if you consider the international music scene the experimental music scene and what we've seen over the last 40 perhaps 50 years so we had you know the minimalists in America building on the work of Cage and, and influencing tons of electronic artists and then in Europe we had people like Brian Eno creating ambient music and building on, on the work of uh, German electronic artists Kraftwerk and Stockhausen and people like that and then what we have in Iceland and it's just far enough away from places in Europe and America, but just close enough as well, that it was able to do its kind of own thing that was influenced by both these movements, but was also completely unique. So what we have is people like Johan Johansson kind of taking ambient music, okay. taking minimalism, and then adding orchestral music yeah. and coming up with this completely new genre. What, what do you think are the... You know, unless I'm preempting. What do you think of the big central things of his, you know, his, yeah, his work? Yeah, so of his work. Let's come on to it, yeah. Interestingly, in the liner note, because sadly, Johan Johansson passed away in 2018. He was yeah. only 48. I know. There was a, the, his label have released lots of his music posthumously. 
and there was a big compilation of, it, of kind of the best of Johan Johansson that came out recently. And the liner note said, now we have an entirely new musical idiom which fuses together minimalist elements, traditional forms, symphonic expansiveness, and both acoustic and electronic sounds. He ignored the barriers between classical and electronic music, probably because it, he was able to do that up in Iceland. It's yeah. my theory. So um, some of the scores that I think you should check out. Arrival, which I watched quite recently, and... There's something about the music in that film. It's amazing. You, you're brought really close to it. I, the way it sits with the picture, it's so intimate, and yeah. you experience the music kind of, it feels very close. There are all these kind of auditory tricks as well, so sound is coming from different directions. It must be the way it, it's recorded. The electronics are just incredible. There's a moment where she's going out to see the aliens for the first time, and again, it's the, the thing I was saying earlier. You see these creatures, there's something horrifying about them. And I don't know if people have seen the film, but they, they spray these things. It's their way of communicating. And it's so moving because, you know, you are imagining encountering this kind of, you know, these creatures from a different planet. And there's something so spectacular about that. And you hear that in the music, these two things, like both terror and also kind of wonderment, I suppose. That's probably his best. Is that his best known soundtrack, do you think, Arrival? Yeah, the theory of oh, everything. Of everything, of course, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. There's also a beautiful little uh, animated film that he wrote the music for called Varmints, and it's um, about a little bee that's on the kind of outskirts of a city, and this little creature's trying to kind of protect its environment as the city is expanding, and it's like, just again, it's, he's, he has so much empathy for this situation, and like the beauty of, of the creature, and the miners' hymns... Um, it's gorgeous. It's beautiful, yeah, yeah. And We'd a lot of brass, which I think... Tells you what side he's on. <laughs> it's a, it's a, the Miner Sims is a film about the northeastern mining industry in yeah. Britain. Um, it was a, he's a really interesting choice of composer from that point of view because it would have been really easy to have got Black Dark Mills or Grimethorpe or something. Yeah. Nothing wrong in that, you know, and, and, got, and done traditional. But what they did is get him working with a lot of brass yeah, yeah. of footage, archive footage of the mining industry in, in the northeast. And it's it's. It's an incredibly moving film, yeah. It is really moving. And I, well, I think the fact, like I say, that he, that he uses brass bands shows which side he's on, perhaps, in, you know, the, the scuffle between the miners and the police. But it avoids um, kind of cliché. It does. It, and it actually, avoid, yeah. yeah, and there's something, there are military associations with brass as well, which kind of come into this. So, it, I don't know, it's sort of challenging you know, our notions of power and community and all those things. But there's just so much empathy in the music as yeah, well. Yeah, it's beautiful. And, it's really beautiful, yeah. Yeah, and it's also kind of a, an ode to hard labour as well, because yeah. you see footage of the miners um, going down into the mines and, and actually, you know, toiling at the coal face. But yeah, it's it's stunning. The footage is stunning. Mandy as well, I think is my favourite, uh, or one of my favourites of his soundtracks. Um, it's a film by Panos Kosmatos, kind of a cult revenge flick slasher type B movie. Um, quite hard to kind of categorise. And this was written, he finished it shortly before he died and it was released posthumously. And it was a bit of an indie project for him to take on, you know, and he's a big Hollywood film composer by this point, but he was interested in doing this because they just let him have free reign. And he went back to his kind of heavy metal roots and played a lot of, uh, dr there's a lot of drone music, heavy drone music influence in there. One of the members of Sun, actually, was a producer, so that gives you the some... The band Sun, yeah, the yeah, band Sun. Sun. Yeah. And then, um, just finally, um, the theory of everything as well, which I'm sure lots of people have seen. But he said that this music really kind of exemplified his quest, I suppose, throughout his career to hold all these emotions in 
one piece or at one moment. And he was saying that, you know, actually there's a lot of sadness in this story, but there's a lot of hope and a lot of achievement and a lot to be celebrated as well. And it also kind of exemplifies the way that he brought in his indie influences and his electronic influences into film music. So, um, yeah, Johan Johansson. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We, at this point, usually halfway through um, our podcast, we do a thing called Notable Exceptions, and people who've listened regularly will know that we nearly always forget Forgetting. to do one until just before... Just idea. Just Steve before we record our, for our producer, Jeff, made this rod for our back. Well, we think of something that's sort of unique that we put in as a halfway point. We, did, we have found out some unique things about Iceland. Can we you remember have. them? Uh, Iceland no mosquitoes. The, there are no mosquitoes in Iceland. It's the only <laughs> Jeff con- gave us that gold about the, th- three minutes before we came Apparently it's the only country in the world where there are no mosquitoes. <laughs> it's the only country in the world where everyone has internet access. Yeah. And no McDonald's. And no McDonald's. So. And if that doesn't get us an advert from the Icelandic <laughs> Tourist Board next year, nothing, nothing will, will it? Yeah. Okay. So, Stuart, what are you going to tell me about? Well, it occurs to me now that for people here in this room, a little while after we've finished, we're going to screen a movie called The Wicker Man in this very theatre, I think. Yeah? At home, well, if you're listening to this on the podcast, you'll just have to go away and, and, watch it. and rent it and watch it. Yeah. Amazon but, Prime. Yeah, oh, that's right. All the streaming networks are available. <laughs> um, but... The problem is, is, is anybody in, in this room who's going to stay on and see The Wicker Man, has anyone not seen it before? Okay. Now, I have a problem now, which is, which is I'm going to have to say spoiler alert then, and you're going to have to put your fingers in your ears. I don't think it will... Sp- Hmm. Okay, let's come back. I was going to say I don't think it will spoil your enjoyment of Is there anyone who hasn't seen it who doesn't know what happens? Okay, well, for the gentleman, though, we definitely have to... I will have to say spoiler alert, and you'll have to put your fingers in your ears. Um, It is a a movie from 1973 with a really... I'll talk about the soundtrack in a second. Let's say a little bit about the film, though, first. People who've seen it or haven't. It's one of my favourite films. It's it's reputation has grown and grown and grown. It's reputation at the time it was made. It's very inauspicious, to say the least. The screenplay is written by a man called Anthony Schaffer, who uh, well known for amongst other things for um, Sleuth, the film Sleuth, which you may know, that brilliant two-hander with Michael Ken and Laurence Olivier, uh, in which again there's musical connections there because fans of the Smiths will know that Sleuth. You'll suddenly be watching Sleuth on a rainy Sunday afternoon on BBC Two, and you'll hear Laurence Olivier say, 
a jumped-up pantry boy who never knew his place. And you realise, as you do with so many things, where Morrissey nicks his lyrics from, books and literature, which, you know, I have no problem with that. I think judicious stealing is very artistic and to be commended. But he wrote from a novel, from the Bourbons of a, of a previously existing novel, he wrote the screenplay for this thing, The Wicker Man, which was then turned into a movie by uh, a director called Robin Hardy in 1973. The plot, without giving anything crucial away at this point, concerns a policeman played by Edward Woodward. He's got a brilliant cast. Edward Woodward is the policeman. Christopher Lee is Lord Summer Isle of Summer Isle, the Hebridean island that the, the action takes place on. And he's so brilliant as well. Christopher Lee thinks it's his best performance and it's his favourite film of his. Uh, you, again, sir, you have a treat in store with Christopher Lee's shockingly camp her and demeanour. Woodward goes to investigate the disappearance of a young girl called Rowan Morrison and quickly finds out that this is a strange old place, shall we say, Summer Isle. And I think The Wicker Man has, has not just the music, but the actual film has been responsible for the creation of a genre of films. I mean, you could argue it's the first folk horror film. These days, cineasts will say, oh, yeah, it's folk horror, like that modern movie Summerland and things like that. Oh, it's folk horror. But I'm not sure folk horror existed before The Wicker Man. I think it invents it, maybe, this idea of, well, those two disparate elements going on. Um, it's not gory. Uh, it's not... There's no shocking jump cuts, it, but it's an atmospheric scary movie, as we all know. The atmosphere is incredibly creepy, isn't it? It is. It's sort of gently creepy, which is doubly creepy in a way. <laughs> the director said of it, and some people think it's a black comedy. And I, I, there was a screening not that long ago in London of a, of a new cut of it, in which people were laughing all the way through. And you can see why. There are some moments of black comedy in it and juxtaposition. Um, this cast is, I've mentioned Edward Woodward as Sergeant Howie, mentioned uh, the Lord Sumrall part that Christopher Lee takes. Britt Eklund, Diane Silento, uh, Ingrid Pitt. They are the main people in it. Um, the plot, without giving too much away, um, the investigation of this girl, Rowan Morrison, and they stumble into, I think it's fair to say, very occult practices, or at least paganistic practices. Edward Wood's character, Sergeant Howie, soon realises that he has stumbled onto a uh, way. In order to keep the apple harvest going, paganistic practices are, are taking place. British Lion, the company who bought the Wicker Man, the company who commissioned the Wicker Man, detested it when it was made. They thought it was appalling. So much so that they heaped ignominy on it in several ways. By 1973, the B, the B movie idea, you know, the A and B movie idea that was prevalent in the 50s and 60s, so there'd be a main feature and then a cheaper, rubbishy B movie, and B movie became synonymous with schlocky, poor quality movies. They pushed The Wicker Man out as the B movie to Nick Rogue's uh, Don't Look Now, you know, the Venice, the little assassin in the red coat, all that brilliant film. And if you were lucky enough to go to those 1973, what a treat, you're the Wicker Man and don't look now. But at the time, it's thought that was all the Wicker Man deserved. Uh, original canisters of film, the original print, some people say, is buried in the M3. The M3 was being built at the same time, and British Line hated the film so much that they dumped 383 canisters of the movie in there. Why did they do this? Because they thought it was bad. There's also another often rumoured reason that film buffs might know is that the head of the rank organisation who I think must have had some proprietary concern over British Lion 
was married to Ingrid Pitt, who plays the school teacher in the film. If you know your Hammer Horror, although she only did two, you'll know Ingrid Pitt, you know. Um, she then had a relationship with one of the people working on The Wicker Man. She had a two-year relationship with him, and, and apparently, so the rumour goes, I'm not saying this is true, I know Ingrid Pitt's alluded to it, the rumour goes that the, the top-ranking business guy at the rank organisation, in a fit of rage at this, found that his wife had been having an affair with someone connected with the movie, wanted the movie killed, wanted it nixed. But it refused to die, much like Dracula and Christopher <laughs> Lee's movies, it refused to die. We were saying this on the way up, weren't we, that, you know, talking about the soundtrack as we're going to shortly, um, it was re-released, which you'll mention, but yeah. in the liner notes, they talk about how it was a bit of a lost classic and people weren't really that interested in it until the late 80s. But actually, I don't know. It seemed to it's, resonate straight away as well. In my it? mind, I've known about The Wicker Man since I was like a, a teenager in the late 70s, early 80s. Am I reinventing history, though? Maybe they're right about it. It's, certainly its reputation's grown. Absolutely not. Cine Fantastique magazine said it is a Citizen Kane of horror movies. It got the uh, 1978 Saturn Award for Best Horror Film. The, oh, I need a shred. A certain scene in the film <laughs> was number 45 on Bravo's 100 Greatest Scurry Horror Movie Moments. And I've forgotten this. It's in the 2012 Olympics opening ceremony. Does anyone remember this? No. I cannot see how they've used that <laughs> in the opening ceremony. But Danny Boyle and FCB, Frank Cottrell Boyce's brilliant opening ceremony for 2012 Olympics... It's used in there somewhere. I'll have to check that out. I've only just learned that, otherwise I would have, I would have found it on YouTube. Um, Johnny, Tr The soundtrack, let's come on to the soundtrack. The soundtrack is made by a gentleman called Paul Giovanni, who's no longer with us, and a band called Magnet, of whom very little is known, except they were students at the, the Royal College, the Royal College yeah, of yeah. Music. He seemed to just assemble them, didn't he? And, uh, he, did. he did. Some of them did go on and compose other things, but they, did. they are largely but, unknown. Sometimes they're even credited as Lodestone, the band. There's a lot of mystery about the film and the music. Um, it, again, I think the music has contributed to a genre of, of music now that you might hear people play, that you might call psych folk or old folk or acid folk. A lot of it was around, we're talking about that period when folk music, the folk revival of the late 1960s, yeah, your yeah. Bert Jans, your Furport Convention, those kind of things the kind of proggy, psychedelic element has come in. So records like Vashti Bunyan's Just Another Diamond Day and a lot of private pressing classics that I love and play on my show, The Freak Zone, that 13 people bought at the time and, and now change hands for 500 quid and are regarded as classics. It's one... But I think The Wicker Man is instrumental. In the freak no folk genre. In, in the yeah. freak folk genre, absolutely, yeah. So Paul Giovanni assembles these band of young musicians to do it. But there's an, it's, although... Gary Carpenter, who is the music um, director of the film, said a soundtrack was, play, uh, was planned. It doesn't seem there's any soundtrack really properly available until in uh, the 1990s. Yeah. 97, I think. It was um, yeah, 97. Yeah. A man called Johnny Trunk, who some of you might be familiar with. Johnny Trunk, for people who love weird music and weird film and TV, is a bit of a god. He is a man who specialises in putting out the music you would hear on the test card. The music from either the engine. And he goes to the end of the earth to find it, doesn't he, as he, well? He goes to the end. Johnny is responsible, so to, no, to no small degree, Johnny is responsible for the rediscovery of a brilliant British composer called Basil Kirchin, yeah. who we're going to do on a future notable yeah, album. Yeah, absolutely. Johnny is tireless in his attempt to get hold of... He is kind of the same generation to me. 
the generation who, while we loved the pop music we heard on daytime radio, also you would hear this music as the clock was counting down before school's programmes, that was weird. It now is called things like hauntology, isn't it? But you know, those weird pieces of music that were somehow really evocative and mysterious. Or that you'd see an open university programme at two o'clock in the morning and a man in a corduroy jacket and a pearl-drop collared shirt would talk about microbes and there'd be some music over the, the experiments that you'd love <laughs> on primitive synthesizers or acoustic guitars. Johnny finds those records and puts them out. And he did this with the weekend. And there's a bit of a parallel with the music in the film as well because there was a search for authenticity with the folk music at the, of the time. That's and, right. and it's called yeah. authentic music. A lot of it is real folk music, if you like. It's like there's a Robert Burns thing in there. There's the earliest piece of music written in English, I think, called Mary It Is, which I think is the first music to have its words written down in English from Middle English. There's the famous Summer Is A Coming In, sung at a crucial moment in the plot. Should I tell this gentleman to... <laughs> uh, no, I'll do it in a moment. Um, a really early version of Bar Bar Black Sheep as well, which I think Bar dates Bar beyond Sheep. the... Yeah, One piece century. of music that a lot of people love is called Gently Johnny, that Johnny couldn't track, Johnny Trunk couldn't track down, and that's why it's not on the Wicker Man soundtrack on Trunk Records. And Johnny says he's forever fielding... Complaints from people who said that piece of music is not on, and as he says, he wanted to do it properly. He's often been accused of bootlegging this soundtrack because he went to the vault and he got bits of tape and he put it together into an album. And he's often accused um, of being a bootlegger, and, and he's a pain to say he is not. He tried to contact everyone responsible for the music, but he soon found out that Paul Giovanni sadly is dead and that the members of Magnet he couldn't track them all down. But everyone he said he could find who had a vested interest in the music, he paid. He asked for permission and he paid. So I think we should say to John, we should say to Johnny's defence, I, I don't think it, it is a bootleg record, it's a commercially available record, and if you don't know it, please get it, it's brilliant. And there's an authenticity and sincerity to everything Johnny does anyway. Apparently nobody knows who, who still to this day, who sings Willow song. Really? The voice on that song. Is that true? Which is a, which is a big moment in the film. I thought it was a Scottish folk singer called Annie Ross. Right, okay. Well, Maybe, well that according could be to the trunk... Uh, what we do know, what we do, oh, let's talk a little bit about that cast while we've talked about that, because Britt Eklund dubs that in the movie. Uh, Ingrid Pitt, up until the end of her life, was writing extensively about horror and blogs extensively about it, and has written a lot about the Wicker Man, what the, what the on-set activities was like, and she talks about the fact that she entered into this serious relationship with someone who was working on the, on the movie. Diane Cilento was in the middle of a very acrimonious breakup with Sean Connery, which she later talks about at length in her autobiography, uh, from which uh, Sean does not emerge very well, it has to be said, or say no more. She says that a lot of the time backstage, although it was a very happy time in filming, it was all filmed around Dumfries and Galloway and Ursha and Ardrossan standing in for the Outer Hebrides. She says that uh, a lot of it was she had to listen to Britt Eklund and Diane Salento grumbling about their husbands, <laughs> who would be Sean Connery and Peter Sellers at that time. There is... Um, a famous sexy scene in it that you're going to see in which the naked Brit Eklund attempts to seduce through a wall Edward Woodward. <laughs> and although Brit Eklund, in the, the toplessness of that is Brit Eklund, she wanted a double for her bump. Yeah, and apparently two women in Scotland claim to be that person. That's right. <laughs> and claim to be Brit Eklund's bump. Claim to be Brit Eklund's bump. Um, this is where... I, right, this is what I will have to say to this gentleman, spoiler alert, because those of you who know will know that the reason Edward Woodward ends up in the predicament he does is because he fulfills four requirements. Do you remember, do you know this about the film? He has got to have the power of a king, he's a policeman, 
He's got to be, he's got to come of his own accord. He does, he comes to investigate the girl's disappearance. He's got to be a virgin, which he is because he's saving himself. He's engaged to be married, remember, in the film. And he, and he won't do anything about that. And he's got to be a fool. And he steals the costume of the fool for plot reasons that you'll see later. <laughs> so the terrible... Ter- I should say about the film, one of the reasons I hadn't thought about it till this morning, that why the film's got a, a brilliantly intimate atmosphere as well is Edward Woodward, who's Sergeant Howie, is in every scene, as far as I remember. There are scenes where he's not in at the beginning, but in every scene you see, he enters it at some point. Everything sort of is seen from his point of view. And the craziness and sinister gaiety of it, it becomes apparent to him as it becomes apparent to you. Rewatching it, we were saying on the way up, weren't we? He is like Agent Cooper in Twin Peaks, must have been, like David Lynch must have been thinking about the Wicker Man. I think so. I think that's really true. I think it's given a trope to, well, it certainly has, hasn't it? The out of town, you know, detective going out of town and solving an out of town. People who live in St John's Wood now, if they come to places as, as remote and rural as Yorkshire, to a village, let's say. <laughs> no, they do. It's a rather patronising trope, I think, but it's become a trope as if like people go, oh, we went into this place, it was really Wicker Man, which kind of annoys me, that lazy... It's like Rick Stein in Iceland, that lazy shorthand for somewhere that's not a big city. Yeah. And also... But it, you're right, I think the Wicker Man's probably contributed a bit to that. Yeah. You know, like the slaughtered lamb in American Werewolf in London, you know. Absolutely. It poses loads of questions, though, as well, doesn't it, about folk culture and... Even at the end, even at the end, <laughs> sorry, <Yes>. spoiler. <laughs> but you know, you, that is there. You, you know, a local culture being pitted against, you know, more kind of your modern contemporary society. I think, and yeah, there's I don't know, there are layers of like. I think there are lots of layers. I mean, we don't, yeah. we don't, we don't over-egging the pudding. For those of you who are about to see it, I yeah. think there's stuff in there. There's definitely stuff about religion. Yeah, there's yeah, stuff yeah. in there about capitalism. Yeah, isn't that because it's about apple production at one level? Yeah. Wow, high octane thrills! It's about apple production, <laughs> so it's about <laughs> which agro- is their survival. It's about agronomy in a way because yeah. Lord Summerall's grandfather has brought these new apple production techniques. So it's a little bit about how a rural community is is taken over. Yeah, it's an ethical conundrum, isn't it? It certainly is. An and the music, conundrum. the music speaks to that because there's, you know, there was this big search for authenticity in music at the time, especially yeah. in folk music. Actually, a good fact about that because a lot of the tracks, a lot of the songs, the traditional songs, uh, were songs that Cecil Sharp had found, and Cecil Sharp was a Victorian collector of folk song. He present, he had to present the songs that he'd found to Queen Victoria, and Queen Victoria's people, entourage, uh, courtiers, whatever, decided that they were far too bawdy for her to yeah. see. So for the Wicker Man, they went back and found the original lyrics and actually Robert Burns was a lot more lot bawdy, saucy yeah. than uh, Cecil Sharp would have had Queen Victoria believe. So, and what, um, yeah, and what gives it some of the unease, and there's definite unease in this film. If the you landlord's so. daughter. Well, things like that, and things <laughs> the fact that when they're singing those very gaily, the children sing those songs about, yeah. and on that woman there was a man, and on that mm. man... And the maple. About the seed and the maple. It's the fact that children are involved in the very high-spirited singing of these songs that really is creepy. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. And the Victorian era, yeah. the Victorian era did sanitise a lot of that traditional folk culture, well, I suppose, and this is then it was passed down to us in you know quite sanitised form. Well, folks, an old thing, though, isn't it? This, this is one for another podcast, for another notable. Cecil Sharp's an interesting guy because always seen as the father of British folk music. That he went and recorded all these people singing songs, working people's songs. His definition of what counted as working people's folk music was was because when people said to him, "Go to Lancashire and Yorkshire and get the get the Weavers' songs," no, no, that wasn't right. He was only interested in farmers. 
He thought only rural work was proper traditional English work. And he was very, so Lancashire clog dancing, things like that. He, he, he was very purist about that. It was all the Gloucestershire apple bobbing he was interested in, you know. Cecil Sharp, Cecil Sharp, exactly. So we'll do a we'll do a big <laughs> takedown of Cecil Sharp in a future <laughs> podcast. Um, let's well, let's, so let's just say if you don't know the Wicker Man soundtrack, it's brilliant. If you don't know the movie, it's brilliant. Johnny Trunk's version is, I'd still say, that best version to, to, to get hold of. People who've covered it, well, I'd say as well as it being the formative influence on all kind of people like Devendra Banhart, Joanna Newsom, all that modern freak folk scene, um, Animal Collective, Tongue Broadcast, I think all these people borrow heavily from it. Um, the songs have been covered by Doves, Isabel Campbell, The Sneaker Pimps. Uh, the song you're going to hear in a moment has been covered by the Mock Turtles, Steve Coogan's brother's band. Martin. Martin. <laughs> a 30th annual in Brussels uh, in 2006, members of Pentangle, Jackie McShee and Danny Thompson, played some of the music from it live. And there was a Wicker Man festival for many years in Scotland. I think that was ended, uh, sadly. There, was, there is a remake. And in the list of American remakes of classic British movies disastrous American remakes of classic British movies. I would say, right up at the top, slugging it out, are the Get Carter remake with... Is it Sylvester Stallone? It's Sylvester Stallone's Get Carter and Nicolas Cage's Wicker Man. But, I mean, truly awful. I mean, it's not... I hate to be censorious, but films that should never have been made, really, should never have been made. Don't watch that. Don't watch that. Don't watch Gregory's Girl. Don't watch Gregory's Other Girl. Uh, don't watch sequels you should never watch. That's for a different podcast, isn't it? Um, but there the was a musical as well, wasn't there? The, uh, the Wicker Man musical. Well, well, there is. See, some people think the Wicker Man's a musical, as you'll see in a minute. There's so much, so, there's so much music in it. Some yeah. people think it qualifies as a musical. But um, again, sir, I beg to have to say, I, I don't want to expose too much of this, but yeah, those, four, those four categories that contribute, shall we say, to the downfall of Edward Woodward in a way Fool comes of his own accord. Uh, Power of a King and the Virgin. There is a scene, I, every time I watch I think this, if only Edward had succumbed to Britt Eklund singing that song through the yeah. wall. It, do you know what I mean? So much badness would have been avoided, wouldn't it? So much unpleasantness would have been avoided because criteria number four or three, depending on where you're carrying them, would have been... Would have been um, that's the truth, though, isn't it? That the detective has to fall foul of the dark arts of the countryside. But he wouldn't have done it. But it's interesting. Yeah. Are they testing? I mean, he may, he are they testing it? What's going on there? You know, that's the interesting thing. What's going on in that? Yeah, yeah. Can't say any more because there is a gentleman in the very lucky position of not having seen the Wickerman. But instead, though, I've told you enough about to imagine this. You're going to see in a minute anyway. Imagine, if you will, Edward Woodward in his little single narrow bed in Scotland. His face <laughs> screwed up in determination to avoid the uh, advances of Brit Eklund singing this truly beautiful song, I think, Willow Song. If you're listening to this at home or in your car or on your commute, I'm afraid you'll have to go to a streaming service now for copyright reasons and play Willow songs. But we here in the audience uh, can hear it and we can say goodbye from this uh, live yeah. notable podcast from me and Elizabeth. Thank you Thank for you being for here. Us. Notable, the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.